The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Robert McChesney. He is the Gutzel Endowed Professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He is also the co-founder of the organization Free Press, which fights for our rights to connect and communicate. In 2008, the Utney Reader named him among its 50 visionaries who are changing the world. Dr. McChesney has written or edited 27 books, including Blowing the Roof Off, The 21st Century, Media, Politics, and Post-Capitalist Democracy, Dollarocracy, How the Money and Media Election Complex is Destroying America, and Digital Disconnect, How Capitalism is Turning the Internet Away from Democracy. Now, I should just stop here and probably satisfy a curiosity for our listeners. You might be wondering what this topic has to do with food, agriculture, and health, but I would argue that the media is the largest single influence on our food and farming choices and decisions, as well as policies, and the need for media literacy has never been greater to both protect our democracy and our food system. Along with John Nichols, Dr. McChesney was awarded the U.S. Newspaper Guild's 2010 Herbert Block Freedom Award, and most recently, and the topic of our discussion today, he has written an article in the Journal of Media Literacy titled, Demystifying Media Literacy. Welcome, Dr. McChesney. My pleasure to be here. Well, the first question I want to ask you, because I think we all come to this topic of media literacy differently, is how did you get interested in this topic? You know, I'm a media professor, and I study media systems, laws, history, and policy, And I'm very interested in creating a media system that will better serve democracy and a self-government, and I'm rather critical of the way our current system works. And my criticism of the media system has always been structural, institutional. I don't think we have bad journalism or bad media because the people are morally defective or they're just stupid. I think we have a system that encourages certain types of behavior and discourages other types of behavior, and the system is really the problem. So I've always been looking at ways to change the media system, and that means understanding how we got the system we have in the first place. So if you're interested in media at that level, which is changing it, understanding it, change it, and understanding the system uh, built on policies usually created by government, then media literacy becomes one of the tools in the toolkit for conveying this information and engaging in a public debate. The point of media literacy originally, and it developed really five decades ago now, was to it was on the premise was that most people had been raised in traditional education, which is all built around print media, being able to read and to write. That's been the essence of education now for hundreds of years, and that that really missed something in this new uh, audiovisual electronic media era, and that people need to understand uh, broadcast media and film and radio in the same way they understood print media and writing and reading. And they need to be able to deconstruct messages and be critical consumers and producers, not just passive consumers. And I was always attracted to that. It's sort of lifting the hood on how a system actually works. So media literacy is something for educating young people, people in K-12, and, in, and adults for that matter, 
how the media system works, what its logic is, seemed like a very smart approach to getting at things I'm concerned with. Mm-hmm. Well, it's so interesting because as I was reading your article, and I should let our listeners know that I became interested in media literacy when I was working on childhood obesity issues, and I thought there's got to be something else here. There's got to be another influencer besides well-meaning people telling children that they need to exercise and eat their vegetables. There was some other controlling hand that was driving children's food choices and preferences. And I stepped into the world of media literacy, and I've really never stepped out. I think it's important. And now not only looking at public health issues, but also looking at the agriculture systems that drive the kind of food that's available to us, the media is powerful. And I think, as you write in your article here, that it's not this quiet thing that sits in the background. It's a hand that is controlling the way we think. So in your descriptions of media literacy in the article, I'm comparing it to how I talk about food, and I'm seeing lots of similarities here. So you talk about how, on the one hand, we could define media literacy by making better consumers of commercial media. But on the other hand, another approach, as you mentioned, is looking to see how media works, that under-the-hood technique, as you mentioned. So I'm thinking about that in terms of food as well. I mean, we could help people read labels better and evaluate protein, fat, carbohydrate, or we could step back and say, how does the food system work and how is the food produced? So you can see how I'm drawing those parallels. I think you're absolutely correct. You're hitting the nail on the head. I think that our food system, if we just approach it as the sort of system exists that produce certain types of food responding to market demand, and that's sort of a given, and then the best we can do is educate people not to eat bags of potato chips and junk food and to lay off corn syrup and try to do our best to educate them to sort of navigate their way through a system that's pointing them in a very different direction. Well, we're not going to get very far, and you're going to get the sort of results we've gotten in this country in the last 30 or 40 years. I think we've got to talk about the general food system, uh, how it works, who controls it, and why it's so profitable to some sorts of things, and what we can do to make it so that the system will produce things that are much more beneficial for our health. Yeah. Now, you have a quote here, or you cite Mark Crispin Miller, and you say he was absolutely correct when he spoke about advertising being the most powerful and successful propaganda system in history. Tell me who Mark Crispin Miller is. Uh, Mark Crispin Miller is a, a professor of communication and media studies at uh, New York University. He's been uh, around for a long time, like myself. I think he's entered old-timer status in the last few years. And Mark Crispin Miller has done a lot of study of propaganda over the years. And one of the striking things about advertising is if you study its history, you realize that in the 1930s and 1940s, it was understood that advertising was simply commercial propaganda. It was the term propaganda was used for advertising. Now, propaganda sort of became a word we don't use in America to describe anything in America. It's a word just to describe whatever is done by bad guys we don't like, like Soviet Union and the old Cold War days. But it was there was a more honest use of the English language back then. It was understood that it was pure propaganda meant to get people to do something that might not be in their interest, but it was definitely in the interest of people doing the propaganda, the advertisers. And that it is an absolutely spectacular form of propaganda because it is effective. It works, and it gives the illusion of giving you power when, in fact, it's all about getting you to do something they want you to do that makes them profitable and something about giving you any power. Mm-hmm. 
Tell me how you would want to change the media system to better support democracy. Well, I think we have a media system that has been set up uh, to make an enormous amount of profit for a relatively small number of companies, and much of that profit, but by no means all of it, has come through commercial or from advertising. And I think this has had a very negative effect on the type of content we get in our media and how it serves us as a people. So I would like to see a media system that has a significant non-profit and non-commercial component, well-funded, competitive, I think that would be a much better media system. I'd like to see a media system where we would actually have journalism. Journalism is something we don't have very much of in the United States today. There are probably about 50 or 60% as many working journalists per capita today in the U.S. as there were 25 years ago. It's simply no longer profitable to do journalism, and much of what passes for journalism is just sort of regurgitating press releases and to go back to the 1930s, propaganda. So I think that this is something we need to address with public policy. And I've written a lot about this in a great length. But I think we see the effects of this and the issues you're concerned with as much as anywhere. Public health, diet, nutrition, the quality and nature of our food system. Much of the money in our commercial media system comes from advertisers for the branded products, food products. And that means that we're in in a media system, in a news media system that is getting a lot of its money from companies that benefit by the sort of diet that's most profitable for them to produce. And it might not be the most profitable for us, but it means that there's probably not going to be great incentive for a media system to critically analyze our food system. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really more of an editorial column writer for about 20 years. And what happened, you know, the paper shrunk and my column was eliminated. But what I saw happening at the same time, it wasn't, I didn't take it personally, you know, I mean, I think that newspapers all over the country shrunk in size, they lost writers, they have journalists doing both the the media, they were taking the photographs as well as writing the stories, so there, there was a big, I won't say collapse, but there was a shrinking of journalists on newspaper staff, and even environmental reporters, for example, their numbers declined sharply, and I'm thinking that with regard to the food system, again, we have to have a clean environment. We have to have good, solid reporting on some of the issues that make a lot of money for corporate interests but hurt us in the long run. And I'm wondering how we get ourselves out of this situation where we really don't have journalists on staff to do these highly investigative pieces to truly inform the public about what's going on. Well, this has been a subject of a lot of my research, and I wrote a book in 2010 with my friend John Nichols called The Death of American Journalism, and I've touched on these issues in other places as well, including the new book, Blowing the Roof Off the 21st Century. And what I argue in both those books, and what John and I have argued in many places for the last decade or so, is that we've got to understand that journalism has never been a free market undertaking. Americans have the illusion that a free press meant that people just made a lot of money doing it, and as long as the government got out of the way and let people try to make money from journalism, then you have a healthy free press. And so if that's the only way we can do it in America, and if rich people can no longer make money doing journalism that's no longer profitable, then, you know, that's just too bad. That's the way God and Thomas Jefferson wanted it. And what my research shows is that it's preposterous and not at all accurate historically certainly not accurate politically or by democratic theory. 
journalism has never really been profitable in a pure commercial sense. It's always been heavily subsidized. The final reader consumer has never paid the freight. And it's not like other markets where the final consumer provides all the revenue. In the case of journalism for the last hundred years, advertising provided the bulk of the revenue. And advertisers only have really a an opportunistic relationship to journalism. They only supported it to the extent it served their commercial interests, their marketing needs. And now that advertisers have all realized that they can really find better ways to accomplish their marketing needs uh, without buying traditional ads, they've all jumped ship, which is one of the main reasons why commercial journalism is in free fall collapse. Now, that leads, though, to the obvious question, well, how do we have a news media system before advertising, which really didn't become much of a factor till. Oh, 120 years ago, roughly, in the end of the 19th century. And what historical research shows is that we had a very heavily subsidized news media system in the first 120 years of American history. Massive postal subsidies. And post office delivered most of the newspapers for the first 100 years of American history. Even in big cities, there'd be newspapers delivered by post offices twice a day. You'd have mail service seven days a week. So, you know, you have to tell the papers got around. The government explicitly made it really inexpensive to deliver newspapers, virtually free, in fact, to encourage more newspapers. Far fewer would have existed had they not done that. And what I argue, and what John Nichols and I have argued together, is that we need the same sort of approach today. We need to come up with creative subsidies so we have independent, uncensored, non-commercial, non-profit uh, news media that the resources actually cover the community. Because the market system's dead, it's dying, it's not replacing it. What we have in the Internet is a far cry from anything that's satisfactory. There's nothing on the horizon that suggests we're going to have anything remotely close to the amount of journalism we need to do the job that we need to have done if we're going to self-government and solve the problems we face. In my view, it's a public policy issue of highest magnitude. It's the only place we're going to find a solution. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Robert McChesney. He is a Gutzel Endowed Professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He is co-founder of the organization Free Press, and in 2008, the Utney Reader named him among its 50 visionaries who are changing the world. We are specifically focusing on an article that he wrote called Demystifying Media Literacy, which appears in the Journal of Media Literacy. So if we have a subsidized news media, does that mean that taxpayers would have to pay for it? Yes, uh, that's exactly what it means. It means that the government would have to find a way to provide funds so we could have working journalists who actually could make a living doing journalism, that would be responsible, accountable, and competing newsrooms, so that we have some semblance of a news media system with people covering politics and affairs of the day. Uh, and the, the proposal that John and I have gravitated to, and I think it's actually been very well received by people who studied it, is that every American should be entitled, every adult over the age of 18, to allocate $200 of government money to any nonprofit, non-commercial news medium of their choice, as long as it meets IRS standards for what nonprofit is, which are well understood and not controversial. And that every year, then, you or me or any listener can give $200 to any recognized nonprofit. It does journalism primarily, and this would be, in effect, a $30 billion subsidy if all adult Americans engaged in it, or $35 billion, that would go to then, you know, let's say in Kansas City, Missouri, people were dissatisfied with the news media there. Well, 20,000 people in Kansas City gave their $200 to a local radio station that was non-commercial or to a website. Well, suddenly that's $4 million. The $4 million, you can hire a lot of reporters to cover the community who wouldn't have work. 
And the condition would be that the news media would not run advertising. They'd be nonprofits, so they wouldn't compete with commercial media. But they would have to earn their money basically in competition with each other from these grants, from, from the public. So it's a public subsidy, but the government doesn't control who gets the money. The government has no say whatsoever. If people don't want to do it, they don't have to give their $200. It's purely voluntary. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting concept because there seems to be so much animosity towards paying taxes to support the commons. And I, through the food lens, of course, I think of the commons as being things like having clean water, protecting our soil and air, public health, but also the importance of, therefore, to supporting media that protects or creates policies to protect those basic environmental needs. I'm not so sure that's true, that there's tremendous public animosity towards paying taxes. I think there are Certainly, strong element of the public which doesn't want to pay taxes for anything except the military or bailouts for corporations. Right. Uh, and that some people think that's the only thing you should use tax dollars for, and think taxes should be very low, as low as possible, especially on wealthy people. And these are viewpoints that are primarily pushed by people who have a lot of money. <laughs> they mm-hmm. look at them, and they don't really want to pay for public services they don't need. It would primarily benefit working class and middle class people like public schools and libraries. Right. I understand that. But I think the surveys show that actually when you ask people, many of our surveys don't really do this very often, you think we should raise taxes to pay for things like education, uh, health care, uh, other issues like this, national parks, even public media. Um, the majority of Americans say, yes, that's a really smart use of money. We need more of it. So I, I think it's just not an issue that politicians generally bring to the public's attention in those terms, because most of our politicians in both parties, not just the Republican Party, tend to be unduly influenced by big money. Well, there's a sentiment that seems to be missing from the media, because I think sometimes maybe the reason why I even had that idea that there was animosity towards having taxes is because the media messages that I hear repeatedly are to the contrary. But you've got survey data that shows the opposite. So wouldn't it be nice if we had that recurring message reinforcing the fact that, yes, people really do want to support these basic common good ideas? That would be very nice. And also, surveys are a little misleading sometimes because how you ask a question oftentimes will shape the answer you get. Right. There's oftentimes people will be asked a survey question, say, which of these 10 candidates do you support for president? And they might not know anything about eight of them. And they'll give an answer, but it's an answer that they'd be the first to tell you is completely uninformed. And then if you say, okay, here's material on each of the ten candidates, go look at it, and I'll come back in a month, you get a completely different answer from them. So what you learn is that you know, surveys are much more impressive when they are based on people having a body of knowledge to work with, too. And that's a different type of survey than oftentimes these sort of Fox News, CNN clicky surveys that are bandied about like they're the gospel truth. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just another piece of media literacy and being savvy about knowing you know, where these statements come from. I want to get back to some media that I'm familiar with. I subscribe to an online morning agriculture list, and it's produced by Politico. And a couple of weeks ago, there was a little piece with just separated from the text with a couple of asterisks, And the message was a political message that was not going to be good for the food system, but it was supported by, I believe it was the Coalition for Safe and Affordable Food, which is actually a front group 
that represents the biotechnology industry organization, Crop Life America, Grocery Manufacturers Association. So there are pieces of information that are interjected into this otherwise newsy newsletter piece about agriculture, but the statement was encouraging readers to support legislation that would have not supported labeling GMO food. Well, you've hit on a lot of issues right here that are really crucial, and let me just say a couple of things about that if I can right Please, now. Please, yeah. more to talk about. First of all, this group you were talking about, this Committee for Safe and Healthy Food, you know, we live in the golden age of irony. We have literally scores, hundreds of these corporate-funded front groups and their names always mean the exact opposite of what they actually are. <laughs> True. So they're the Committee for Healthy Energy. That means they want to drill up everything. Yeah. Or the Committee for Vibrant Forests. That means they want to plow them down. And they're always bankrolled by the, by the corporations and pushed heavily by the sort of Heritage Foundation, right-wing think tanks uh, that basically are there to serve short-term profit above all else and uh, the interests of investors above all else and the wealthy above all else. And they have tremendous influence over the news because much of what professional journalism does is it relies on what are called official sources to sort of give its take on how a story should be covered. One of the reasons why the climate change story, the nature of the news media coverage changed radically from the 90s until recently is that in the 90s it was accepted by everyone that human-caused climate change was a major problem that governments had to address. Even energy companies admitted that back in the 90s. And then they went on the offensive with ExxonMobil and the other energy companies, literally spending millions creating 40 or 50 of these bogus front groups that made it look like there was this grassroots uprising against environmentalism. And it was a complete fraud, but they paid a lot of money, and so they were able to create this illusion that there was actually legitimate scientific dissent in grassroots opposition. So even New York Times coverage and Washington Post coverage, legitimate news media coverage, suddenly was balanced now. It didn't, the science had to be balanced by these front groups. And it created doubt in the minds of Americans. Well, maybe this isn't really, there isn't really climate change. Maybe there's really a debate in the science when there was no debate. So that's something that's been going on. It's a tactic that's been successfully employed by powerful interests. And it's been a really crucial tactic in recent times. And you're wise to be alert to it. The other part of that, and it's even more insidious, is that with the disintegration of journalism, the standards against allowing commercial interests to buy the news are really eroding. We've got a lot of journalists today who are out of work, who are desperate, who are working on a pay-per-piece scenario uh, for legitimate online news services that are being offered money if they write pieces favorable to industry. And they're doing it because they need to eat. They have to pay their rent. You know, I have friends who work for the Wall Street Journal and for other major websites who are in on these, they funnel me stuff about this, and I've written about it. Uh, this is widespread, and it's a term for some aspect is called native journalism, which is basically where corporate interest or self-interested party creates a bogus website that looks like real journalism, and they pay for everything. And it spouts the position of the people who are surreptitiously bankrolling it. But these are awful times for journalism. Uh, the commercial market's collapsing. Journalists are absolutely desperate, those who are still trying to remain in the field. The morale's at an all-time low. And so these groups come along and take advantage of it. And we get, as a result, heavily distorted journalism on some of the most important issues of the day. Absolutely. All right. So we've got a few minutes left, and what I'd like to do is leave our listeners with some strategies for survival. How do we recreate a true free press 
And how do we become more media literate? Well, it's it really does come down to politics, and ultimately it comes down to changing the government policies. That's for food. That's for media. These are issues that you can only go so far as consumers and in the marketplace because our system exists not because of the marketplace. It exists because of government policies that created this type of marketplace so that we have five companies that dominate food production in the entire United States. That's not a free market development. That's a government policy development. These five companies basically own the government. And so if you want to change the food system or the media system, if you want to protect and expand journalism, it's going to require changing government policies. That means getting different people in power. So anyone who takes it seriously, I'm not going to endorse a candidate or a party or anything, but as corrupt as our political system is, and I've written widely on the, the extraordinary level of corruption that dominates our election system today, it still behooves all of us to be involved as citizens, get involved, find people to support, and be active even between elections on issues, harassing, bugging politicians on them. It's frustrating, but the encouraging point all of us should take is that those of us who want a more open, democratic, egalitarian society, where people actually do engage in self-government, we really do have the numbers on our side. Uh, the vast majority of the American people are with us. If they weren't, you wouldn't be seeing these corporate interests spending tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars on propaganda every year. If they thought they could win a fair fight, they would just have a fair fight. Instead, they know they can't win a fair fight, so they have to pollute the public information airways with their propaganda in order to confuse people, and then and only then can they win. So it's a struggle. We, everyone's got to get involved. I mean, there's no, You can't sit this one out. Uh, everything's really on the line. So, And for young people in particular, Right now, we're facing probably the worst labor market young people have faced since the Great Depression. And in some respects, it's even worse than the Great Depression for college-educated students in particular, or graduates. The whole future depends on whether we solve these sorts of problems. If we don't solve them, nothing's going to get better. And that means you have to get into politics. There's no two ways about it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm always sad when I hear young people say that they want to opt out of politics because they are so discouraged, and we really need to be very much involved if we want to. When you opt out of politics, you're doing exactly what people in power want you to do. They're raising a glass of champagne in the back room saying, thank you, Jesus, yes. uh, when someone says they're dropping out of politics. That's just one less dollar they have to spend deceiving them. Yes, exactly. Now, where should we go, Dr. McChesney, if we want to be more informed? I certainly want our listeners to know about freepress.net and direct people there to that excellent website. Where else would you like them to go to read more about your work? Well, I think you can Google my name and find all sorts of stuff about me that I've written online or books if you're interested in them, Barbara McChesney. But I would say in addition to Free Press, a couple of other groups that listeners should become familiar with, and I bet you probably talked about this one first group on your show, there's a group based in Madison, Wisconsin called the Center for Media and Democracy. Yes. They do a lot of work on public relations, exposing spin. They've been very concerned with food issues over the years, too, and how much corporate spin and propaganda has been used for corporate agriculture to promote those interests. I think people should look up the Center for Media and Democracy and look at their website. They do exceptional research. I can't speak more highly about them. Another group that does great media analysis I'm a big fan of is called Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Their website is fair.org, F-A-I-R.org. They do terrific work. I think, you know, they're great places to go to really see the -the state-of-the-art research that's being done on these issues, along with freepress.net, of course. 
Well, I will make sure that we have links to those sites for our listeners, and I want to thank you again for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank Dr. Robert McChesney, endowed professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, for joining us today. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Dr. McChesney, for helping to raise the veil on what's going on in our media system. My great pleasure.